The following is a message by Dr. John Fesco from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have gathered us here this morning, that we might briefly reflect upon your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would perceive Christ and his gospel clearly, that we would look to it by faith in the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would empower us to live righteously in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue the uh, faculty series uh, through the book of Galatians, the passage this morning that we have before us is Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, so I'll just read the text and then uh, proceed uh, with uh, my remarks. So uh, chapter chapter 2 of Galatians, beginning in verse 15, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. I think that if we were to go and reflect upon the great saints of the Old Testament, certainly King David would rank up there with uh, a number of them. And we would probably come to this conclusion because among many other things that the scriptures say about King David, in the book of Acts we find the statement that David was a man after God's own heart. But the question is, is why is this so? Why is David called a man after God's own heart? Well, we could say that in one sense, David did many great things. In many ways, he was a righteous king. But I think in the end, we can say whatever else we might come up with is that David knew what the forgiveness of sins was all about. David did not simply have an intellectual knowledge of what it meant to be forgiven of great sin. We all know that David was guilty of great sin. He was uh, guilty of great deception, of adultery, and even, unfortunately, of murder. It's the type of sin that we can well imagine that if any of us were to be faced with it, it would likely be the type of sin that we would, uh, it would make us sick to our stomachs. Perhaps uh, we've never been sickened by our own sin, but if you're in the ministry long enough, you certainly see that 
and perhaps even know of it personally from your own life. Where you look in your spiritual mirror, so to speak, you look into the law of God and you're not pleased with what you see, but instead you're literally physically ill because you find yourself in a pit, a pit from which you think that there is no way to be extracted. And in the end, I think ultimately this is why David is called a man after God's own heart, because he knew the depths of his depravity. He knew the depths of his sinfulness. Of course, we have this recorded for us famously in the 51st Psalm, where David, on the heels of his great sins uh, involving Bathsheba, cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I think in many ways we can say that David had no pretensions whatsoever about any type of righteousness that he might bring before the throne of God. He was deeply aware of his sin, and he literally, we could say, prostrates himself before the Lord, crying out to the Lord that he would have mercy upon him. I think at the core of David's being, and hence the reason as to why the scriptures call him a man after God's own heart, is that he was aware of his sinfulness. He was aware in the way that Christ might say that Christ did not come for the righteous, but instead came to save those who were ill. Only those who are ill are in need of physician, not the righteous. And for all of these reasons, then, in another song, in Psalm 143, Psalm 143, verse 2, David makes a similar cry. He finds himself in dire straits, in need, and seeking God's deliverance, and he cries out, and at this point I read the King James Version, he said, And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. In thy sight, no man living shall be justified. Again, I think David was deeply aware of his sinfulness. Now, you may be wondering, why on earth have we spent a little bit of time here talking about King David? Aren't we supposed to be in Galatians? You've missed the passage by a whole testament. But actually, no, we haven't. Because this is one of the key statements that Paul quotes Here, in this passage from Galatians, he quotes Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your serving, for no one living is righteous before you. He quotes that passage. He quotes that statement. Why does he quote that statement? Well, because the problem that he was facing with the Galatian false teachers is that they believed that they could somehow use their own obedience 
to curry favor with God, to somehow improve their standing before the throne of God. Now, of course, they weren't, say, if we were to use the anachronism, they weren't Pelagians. They weren't saying that we don't need the grace of God whatsoever. They said, of course, sure, we need Christ, but not only do we need Christ, but we also need to add to what Christ has done. We need to bring our circumcision forward. And so Paul says, for example, in verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. See, Paul is saying, no. The law is not a tool to somehow climb your way into heaven. It's not a ladder. The law is powerless to save. And one thing we can say that the Gospels certainly illustrate this point quite intently. And that you have Jesus, for example, as he goes and finds lepers. What does the law say to do with the leper? Cast the leper outside the camp. The priest, of course, would have to go and inspect the leper and see, well, are you clean or are you unclean? And if you're unclean, you know, in other words, you hear those passages from Leviticus, if, if the stuff is kind of, you know, splotchy, well, then, you know, send them back out. So grateful that that is not the responsibility of New Covenant, uh, you know, uh, ministry. Be like, why don't you go take that to the doctor? I have no idea what I'm looking at. But Jesus comes along, and he is greater than the law. He does the unthinkable, and he touches the leper. He touches the woman with the unstoppable flow of blood. He touches those who are unclean, and instead of contracting their defilement, he heals them. In many ways, it's a proleptic look. It's a forward, advanced look as to what Jesus ultimately will do, not only saving us in terms of delivering us from sin, but saving us body and soul. And he shows a picture of that by restoring the health of these people. Remember, what does the law do? It simply says, thou art condemned, leave the camp, leave the presence of God where Christ comes in and he does what the law is incapable of doing. He heals and he saves. This is why Paul is so intent, not by the works of the law. And this is ultimately why he quotes there Psalm 143 too, that no one living is righteous before you. Or as the King James says, for in thy sight no man living shall be justified. He goes on in verses 17 and 18, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I think in many ways what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, I can identify with what you're doing. I used to be zealous for the traditions of our fathers. But he says, I tore all of that down. It's dung. The only thing that matters is Christ. 
And I'm not going to rebuild those old traditions. I cannot join you because to join you means to forsake Christ. And so this is why he says ultimately that no matter how much you may try through obedience to the law to somehow improve your standing before God, it's pointless. But he doesn't keep them in suspense. He doesn't say, well, I'm so sorry, you know, the law is not the approach here, and, you know, I'm not sure what else you can do. He holds out the hope of the gospel. And he's already stated as much by saying that we look to Christ by faith. And so he goes on and elaborates in verses 19 and 20, and he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then perhaps one of my favorite verses, and maybe one of yours as well in all of the scriptures. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is everything for Paul. Because he says what you desperately desire through your own efforts to obtain through the law, Christ has given to you freely. And because you are in union with Christ, his death is your death. And the death that he has suffered in terms of the curse of the law becomes yours. And the life that he lives because of his perfect righteousness is yours. Therefore, he says, I've died to the law. It no longer uh, stands and no longer condemns me. And now I have life in Christ. And moreover, what you are trying to achieve through the law, not only before conversion, but even after conversion, Christ gives you freely because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I.e., Christ lives in you. So Paul in no way is saying that you throw off uh, morality. The gospel is not in any way a license for sin. Rather, what he's saying is that when you are united to Christ, Christ lives in you and produces that holiness that the law calls for. But it comes not by works. It comes by faith. And so Paul concludes in verse 21 by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I love Paul's refusal to compromise. So often, you're stuck between the horns of a dilemma. And we think, well, maybe the option is, is we can find a middle way. Sometimes that's true, but not here. There is not the option that says, well, we can be justified by works or we can be justified, be justified by faith alone in Christ. Well, maybe there's a third option. We can cut the middle and maybe a little bit of works and a little bit of faith or maybe a little bit of works and a lot of faith. Paul says, no. It's either Christ or nothing. And he says, and if justification, if your declaration of righteousness, of right standing before the throne of God, that which secures your eternal state, if that comes through the law, then Christ has come for no reason. Give it up. Don't even give Christ lip service. It's useless. 
And I love that. And I think Paul essentially was intent on showing the Galatians, and especially the false teachers, but I think the church as well, that they had two choices before them. It was either Christ or nothing. And out of a pastoral concern for them, he wanted them to see. It's kind of like going to the doctor's office and the doctor telling you, or the doctor knowing, well, you know, you've got cancer. You know, I wonder if I should tell the patient. You know, maybe, maybe if I just tell him, it'll be all right, don't worry about it. I know you're feeling not so good. Just take some Advil and, you know, call me in six months. You know, the doctor would want you to know this is what the situation is. This is how grave it is because apart from treatment, you're going to die. Well, I think those are the extremes that Paul is setting before them. He's saying, apart from Christ, there's nothing but death, curse, and judgment. Well, I think we can say that Paul's words ever ring true and are as relevant today as the moment that he put them to paper, or parchment, sorry to my New Testament colleagues, in that there are so many people in the church as well as outside the church that think that their right standing before God can be secured by a number of different ways. They think, well, I'm not wanting to advocate heresy or anything, but maybe I can be justified by psychology. You know, because I have all of these problems and I, I have this sinful conduct, but it's really not my fault. I was raised by some pretty rotten people. So let me excuse my sin and excuse my conduct because it's my parents' fault. Or, you know, I'm not guilty of great sin because I have, you know, I have psychological issues. I'm on medication. So I I, I should be justified uh, because I have these problems. And I know God, he, he wants to grade on a curve. He's not that stringent. How about justification by guilt? You know, I feel really bad about my sin. And if I just feel really bad long enough, then that is what will justify me in God's sight. Because he'll see how horrible I feel. And he won't, can't do anything else but then to feel sorry for me. And say, you know, there, there, you know, don't feel so bad. Don't beat yourself up. It's really not that bad. I know you didn't mean it. Or how about justification by gratitude? If I just live as thankfully as I can, then certainly God will be pleased. So it's an effort to say, well, Lord, I've got to thank you somehow. However many ways we may try to devise, they're all in one sense a form of legalism. Not the type of legalism that we find in the Galatian churches where they were bringing forth circumcision, but it's where we try to bring forth some sort of effort other than faith in Christ. I think one of the most pernicious forms of legalism in our own day is perhaps maybe not as many of these different options as we looked at, but I'd want to say is simply justification by good intentions and good works. You see, I think the scriptures, and I could be wrong about this, but I really think that this is the case, is that legalism is far more dangerous than antinomianism. 
And I think that many people in the church think it's the opposite. Think that antinomianism is more dangerous. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should be antinomian. Of course not. You know, as Paul would say, you know, may it never be. But it's like, you know, think about it. You look at somebody and and, uh, this guy is, uh, you know, tying one on every night. Uh, He cusses like a sailor and, uh, you know, is uh, very kind of promiscuous and then claims to be a Christian. You're going to be like, yeah, I don't think so. Really? You're a Christian? You can spot the antinomian behavior and, and call it for what it is. Legalism, on the other hand, I think, as Paul said to Timothy, has the appearance of godliness, but none of its power. And that somebody looks like they're holy because they try so hard. But that very well may not be that the person is looking to Christ by faith alone. It could have all of the appearances of godliness, but none of its power. And this is why Paul's message is so important. You see, beloved, I think far too many of us in the church think of ourselves as righteous. We don't know what it means to be physically ill because of our wickedness. We don't know what it means to be at the absolute very bottom like David was, where he knows that there is nowhere else to turn but to throw himself upon the mercy of our covenant Lord. And this is why I think Paul says, quoting David, that no one living shall be justified in thy sight. And this is why David found his consolation, not in anything that he could do, but in the righteousness that comes from God through Christ, by faith, by grace alone. Again, Paul's message is clear. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I close with these simple words. They're simple, but nevertheless powerful. And I think that they truly capture Paul's intent. Hopefully it's familiar to us all. They're the words uh, by hymn writer Augustus Toplady. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, Lord, let us not think that because our sins may not be so bad that we are somehow righteous on our own. Help us to recognize that sin is sin, 
And that the only way that we can be freed of the stain of guilt, the only way that we can be freed from the shackles of Satan, sin, and death is by looking by faith to Christ alone, by your grace alone. Oh, Father, we pray that not only even in our conversion, but also throughout the rest of our lives, we would hold fast to the gospel of Christ, knowing that the gospel is life to us because ultimately it is Christ who lives in us. We pray that in this way that we would rely upon Christ to manifest those good works and to show forth his holiness before this lost and dying world. And that in the end we would be faithful, not because of our faithfulness, but because of your faithfulness. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.